Yo, Trey. Kevin, what's up, man? You know, I've been thinking, what would have happened if the NBA never vetoes the Chris Paul trade to the Lakers and we get CP3 in the same backcourt as Kobe in L.A.? Well, you get a very happy Jack Nicholson, for sure. And the Lakers probably win a bunch more championships. CP3 finally gets a ring or two or three. And the Kardashian empire is forever altered. What did you just say? Hey, everybody, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier, and we're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. It's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This podcast is gold. Basketball gold. You're tuned into the best Cleveland Cavaliers podcast in all the land. Basketball gold. Hosted by Mike Fratello and Jeff Phelps. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Basketball Gold with Fratello and Phelps. He's Fratello, former NBA head coach, NBA color analyst, Mike Fratello. I'm Jeff Phelps. I am in my home. All good for me. Mike, you haven't seen home in a couple of weeks. How's the great Fratello adventure of November doing? It's amazing how quickly you run out of things like T-shirts and socks and underwear. <laughs> and need to take them out and get them washed and dried and folded and then replace them so you still have something to use at the end of the trip. But it's, uh, it's about time for me to get home. I'm kind of anxious to get back. But I've been out here with the Clippers, I've done six of their games and two of their studio shows. So it's been a long run. So I, let's just clear this up. I, I'm really hoping you're asking folks at the hotel if they do laundry and you're not like getting quarters and going down to the laundromat over by the Staples Center, are you? Or the former Staples Center. I found an organic cleaner. Nice. And it sounded good, you know, Jeff, <laughs> I, I can tell you what an organic cleaner is, but yeah, I don't know. it looked very impressive. So I actually took my stuff, put it in the bag, walked it down there, dropped it off, and came back the next day to pick it up. And it was washed, dried, folded. So I've been able to make it through the end of the trip. That's fabulous news. I'm very happy for you. I'm even more happy for your coworkers in Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah, I know they are. <laughs> well done on that. The uh, Cleveland Cavaliers, your former team, Northeast Ohio's pride and joy, been going nuts because they had the big winning streak. Then they had the losing streak. They ended that losing streak, Mike, in an interesting kind of way. How in the world? And they beat the Charlotte Hornets. That's terrific. It only looks like a win in the win column. That's all you really need. You had a 10-point lead with 45 seconds on the clock. And this game went into overtime. And then it went into double overtime. And the bottom line is you got the win. You needed the win. You ever seen a game where you had a 10-point lead with about 45 seconds to go and you didn't close it out? That's tough. 
It's actually happened a couple times already this really? season, Jeff, yeah. to a number of different teams in the league. And one, it tells you the impact of the three-point shot. And you got me thinking about end-of-game packages. And what I mean by that is uh, football has certain sets of plays that they use coming down the stretch, either to protect the lead uh, when they're out in front by three, by seven, by eight, uh, by nine, depending on what it is. Uh, what do they want to run? Who do they want in the game? And I'm wondering how many basketball coaches have packages for the last two minutes of a game if they're up winning by however many it might be. And who are the guys that are on the floor? Because there's a chance that the other team could start fouling you intentionally. Do you change your lineup and become a less potent team, taking someone out that's a poor foul shooter? Or do you leave him on the floor and hope that he finally starts to make some of his free throw attempts? Uh, but the package thing came into my mind for what plays do you run with is ball movement where they're not going to turn the ball over. Will you use up clock and wind up with a high percentage shot and the end of all that? And then obviously you always hope to get a defensive stop, kick it out. And can you get numbers in transition? And do you want to take those opportunities if they're there or do you back it out to run some more clock? So time and score seems to determine uh, everything. Uh, and then foul situation, bonus situation, all that plays into it. But is it a shock that a team would lose a 10-point lead with 45 seconds to go? You hate to see it happen, but this is the NBA, and I've seen it already this year a couple times. So the good news, like you said, is they hung on yep. and were able to walk away with a win uh, because I just – Keep thinking of the poor Jets coach yesterday with 20-something seconds on the clock when he decided to punt the ball away with the score tied 3-3. And the guy catches it and runs it back, what, 84 yards for a touchdown yeah. to win the game. Just the look on the coach's face, it just breaks your heart. And that same thing happens with the NBA guys when they have a substantial lead, lose it, and wind up losing the game in overtime. Mike, in, in the Cavs situation – Obviously, you know, Donovan Mitchell changes everything because the team is different and in so many ways. Is it a is it a learning how to play together type of thing? Or is that what happened against Charlotte? Just a fluky finish to a game. It's hard to answer that without being with the team every day, knowing what happens every day. Certain guys have the courage to take the last shot of every game with the game on the line. And that same person might be the one who, as the other team is closing in, says in his mind, look, I'm the guy that's going to carry this team and I'm going to make the next bucket. He tries to do something he shouldn't do and he loses the ball and has to turn over and the other team goes down and winds up scoring and cuts into the lead even more. So sometimes the competitiveness of the situation, uh, Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
the lack of trust in teammates that perhaps he doesn't know well enough yet. And I'm not saying that's what's happening with Donovan Mitchell by any means. He has been terrific with his teammates. But I'll give you examples of what could take place and what happens in other places where guys are new. They don't know who they can trust on the team yet down the stretch because, as we know, there are a lot of guys that run away from the basketball at the end of games. It's it's like the fielder in baseball that's saying to himself, please don't hit me. Okay, a ground ball, uh, bottom of the ninth inning, you know, bases loaded, runners on, and go hit it to that guy over there at third base or at second base. Well, I don't want it hit to me right now. Well, same thing happens in basketball. Some guys want that ball at the end. Others don't. Then a win over the Miami Heat, a Heat team that's struggling, Mike. And you saw the starters' minutes get dropped a little bit, which was nice because the Cavaliers were in control of this game. Uh, the bench came through a little bit. Jetty Osmond had a nice game for the Cavaliers, uh, 20 points in 37 minutes. And Isaac Okoro had a 13-point game, which was terrific to see in 29 minutes. You, you get a game like that every once in a while. How do you find consistency now, Mike? You had a a big winning streak. You've had a losing streak. You've had a couple of wins now. One you almost gave away, but two teams that have been struggling a little bit. At this early point of the season still, about 16 games in, how does a team find consistency? Well, you go back and you look at the games that you lost and you, you find out what was missing in those games. What happened? Did we not shoot the ball well? Did we have 25 turnovers in the game? Did we get pounded on the glass? Uh, did our defense let us down? And then you look for the consistency of the guys. You just mentioned two names here that contributed points, and that's what the coach is looking for, night in and night out. The good teams know who's going to give them what almost every night of the season. doesn't happen every night. All-star players have a bad night every so often. But that's where you look for the guys who are around you to pick up their games on those Night to realize that, hey, our star is struggling tonight. He needs some help. And that's me. Uh, when they were on that losing streak, what happened with the Cavs was not only were they having breakdowns with their defense, but guys that you mentioned, Jetty, for example, mm-hmm. they need him to come off that bench. He supplied them that energy early in the season. And what's happened in the past couple of years, he's had a tendency to get off to good starts to, you know, to begin the season. And then he fades when he gets to that halfway mark. And he can't do that. Uh, They need him. They rely on his energy. They rely on him driving the ball to the basket, making three-point shots when they swing him the ball. They need his hands in there defensively coming up with deflections and steals. So if it happens where one or two guys wind up disappearing that the head coach is counting on, it obviously causes a problem in the team. The, the nature of the makeup of the coach. So what does the coach do? Does he take that guy out of the lineup and not play him? Does he turn it to somebody else? And I think most coaches tend to trust the guys they've made the decisions with, and they'll live through X number of bad games. There does come a point some, somehow where you say, we, we've got to make a move with the eighth man or seventh man, whoever it might be. Let's try so-and-so in that position. Depending on the depth of your team, Do you have somebody to turn to? You may not have a guy to put in there to take the guy who's been struggling for the last four or five games. That next guy up may be way worse than the guy you have. So you just live with it and you hope he breaks out of it. Kevin Love, a little bit of an injury situation. He's going to miss a little bit of time. 
Uh, we had Donovan Mitchell out for a while. You had Darius Garland out for a while. They've missed a couple of games. Early on, Mike, when you're trying to bring in a new guy and, and mesh this thing, is that is that a real challenge or is it, okay, we're, we're going to get there eventually and this gives other guys more of a chance to play a little bit? Uh, is it a positive or a negative, I'm wondering? I would well, think negative, you, Mike. Let me ask you this. I'll, I'll throw a curveball yep. to you. Is that guy that you're talking about right there, is he a guy that's on the roster now that you're putting into that position or are you going out and bringing somebody else in from another team that's coming in? Which one of those? You mean to fill in like for the agent? Do a deal, sign a free agent that got cut or somebody that was in Europe that came back. Which one, which one do you want to take there? Moving a guy up? maybe the 11th man or the 10th man or the ninth man, moving them up into the rotation, or mm. is it going out and trying to fix the problem by getting a new person on the roster? I would think it's just playing guys who are a little deeper on the roster. If in fact you have those kind of guys and, and maybe that keeps chemistry from building a little bit early on in the season. You know, it's, it's clear that, that there is some real talent there. But, you know, Karis LeVert's been up and down. Jetty Osborne, the whole bench production's been up and down. You've been looking for that guy at three, and I, I give you know, I, I give J.B. Bickerstaff credit in trying some different things there. But I, I think he's had to, Mike, because of the injury situation and just trying to find some consistency, no? Didn't it seem like all was going so well when the front line was uh, Allen at the center position, Mobley at the power forward spot, and Wade – at that mm -hmm. small forward position, that seemed to be a good bunch going there. Wade did his thing, made jump shots, defended. They were able to switch a lot of positions. The other two guys were able to pound the glass, get offensive rebounds, second shot opportunities, protect the rim at the defensive end, and then injuries set in. And when the injuries set in, then you start to shuffle bodies, shuffle people around into those positions to try and come up with closer to performance that you start again. But it's not the same guy. The starter's out. The next guy, you say, man up. Well, you've got to be ready mentally to handle that, handle the number of minutes that you're going to get, depending on how much the coach wants to use you. And then productivity-wise, let's just use Wade as an example. The guy at 6'10 can make threes from the corner, and when you're throwing the ball, you expect that he's got a pretty good chance of going in if he shoots it. When you lose him, who's the next guy that you can put in that spot? You can't go with Kevin Love, Mobley, and Allen as a front line for a long period of time just because of mobility. It goes to the three, you know, big guys. Uh, Wade, a little more mobile, little, moves his feet a little bit better than those other guys against smaller players. So the coach has a problem trying to figure all that out. It's basketball gold with Fratello and Phelps. He's the Fratello NBA head coach, Mike Fratello, color analyst with the Cleveland Cavaliers and the Los Angeles Clippers. I'm Jeff Phelps. And Mike, I will tell you, I've been scouring history books and websites and checking out a combination of high-scoring backcourt guys and seeing how it plays out. And because I, I think the Donovan Mitchell-Darius Garland combination is kind of fascinating. And I found a couple of things that, that you might find interesting. I hope everybody else does as well. Through 16 games, and, and I think this is kind of skewed, because Darius Garland was out and Donovan Mitchell kind of kicked up the shots a little bit. And Darius has had some games, a couple when, when Donovan was out and he's taken a lot of shots, but through the first 16 games, 
Uh, Donovan's averaging just under 30 points a game at 29.9 and Darius at 23.7. Terrific combination there. But they've taken a combined 39 shots per game so far through 16 games. And real high volume shooting by, by a backcourt that's really good. We know that. And I thought, okay, what are the two backcourts we've we've thrown out? Everybody's thrown out. Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars in Detroit. So I checked that out. The most shots they ever took in a season averaging combined was 35 shots per game. And it was when your buddy, former Cavs assistant coach, Ron Rothstein, was coaching Detroit for a year. Uh, and during their heyday, Dumars and uh, Isaiah, right around 30 shots per game. And then I checked with on Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum, the more recent kind of combination that everybody's talked about. And they were terrific together in Portland. Uh, Six-year stretch when their shot totals were kind of in the same neighborhood as Darius and Donovan right now. And this is the, the thing I found interesting. They made the playoffs all six years they were together when those shots were in the same neighborhood. And, and I say neighborhood, 37 to 39 shots per game, Mike. But in those six years, they were knocked out of the first round four times. They made the semis once. They went to the Western Finals once. And I sat back and I thought, okay, what does all this mean? And I guess what I'm kind of wondering, can a smaller backcourt, and I don't think they'll sustain that many shots because it's going to settle down and, and the guys will you know be playing together more often. Can you win the way you want to win with two guys in the backcourt taking that many shots and such a percentage of the shots for a team? Have you liked what you've seen of the two of them together? And, and can that be sustained? This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. That's a long intro, isn't it? Well, I... I... I'm glad you did because it's been giving me a chance to run through combinations, you know, in my mind. Uh, I wonder what Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge took as a backcourt in Boston back then. Uh, remember, they had Bird to satisfy. They had McHale to satisfy. They had Parrish to satisfy yeah. up front. Yeah, in their own right, they were a pretty good backcourt. But I would say they probably didn't come close to a combined 37 shots per game uh, when they were in Boston. I could be off, and I was trying to run through other backcourts in my mind, uh, and maybe I wonder if if our laptops are smart enough if we ask them uh, highest, not. you know, highest number of field goal attempts by starting backcourt in the NBA, if that would produce more numbers, and were they able to win? Yeah, you, know, you think of you know Magic with Byron Scott was that one of the things, or when Kobe came along and and you know, started moving towards the peak in his career because Magic wasn't a high-volume shooting guy. He got everybody else involved and then did what he had to do, like when he would play center in the championship game when Kareem yeah. couldn't play that night. You know, he stepped his game up a little bit, Magic, and wound up scoring a lot of points and getting a lot of rebounds. Um, it's a good question because I, I think it would depend on what you have up front to contribute. Uh, does your backcourt have to do that for you to stay in the game or 
Are they smart enough to understand I've got a guy who can score 15 to 20 points on our front line? I have to get him involved as well. Or you're going to have that battle within the team of field goal attempts. As I've said before on one of our previous podcasts, for most teams, there are generally three people that take the majority of the shots. And those three guys are guys that you can throw the ball to, that you can count on. And they know that that's part of what they're being asked to do. Sometimes you have a deeper team and you might have a fourth guy that you can rely on for a lot of shots. Just think of our team. If you want Kevin Love to be involved, you better get him some shots when he's coming off the bench. What good is Kevin Love standing out there if you don't pass him the ball when he's open behind the three-point line? You're taking one of his strengths is facing up behind the three-point line. So you've got to get him X number of shots a game. If he takes 10 shots from behind the three-point line, he makes five of them. He got 15 points out of that guy. Um, so it's just a way to look at the chemistry and the makeup. And and can you do it? I'm, I'm sure we would find the backcourt that dominated the ball, took a lot of shots. Uh, would you count Earl Monroe and Walt Clyde Frazier? When they were with the Knicks uh, together? They may have taken a lot of yeah. shots in the New York Knicks. Uh, so – I'm trying to think back, you know, as we go back in the past and, and figure out, can it be done? Yeah, I think it can be done. That's how the team is structured. You know, Mike, I, I like the combination, you know, and, and I love the productivity. Darius made an all-star team last year. I've been a Donovan Mitchell fan for some time. How do you make that grow if you're J.B. Bickerstaff and, and the other guys? Or or do you not do anything and, and you just let it naturally play out and, and the guys figure out how they're doing? Obviously, they've had a nice start, and the scoring numbers have been terrific. And again, I, I think it's a little skewed because when Darius was out with his eye injury and Donovan missed a game or two, but I, I just wonder how it develops from here. If you were running it, could you? Can you impose something as a coach, Mike, or or does do, do those two guys or do the other guys? How, how does that all come together? And maybe maybe the keywords are settle in to to where it can be most productive for the team. I think the key thing, uh, Jeff, is are you and your staff, meaning front office management or coaching staff, perceptive enough to determine we've got what it takes? There are rosters that are together that really have what you need to win and win big, but it may not be their time right now. Sometimes you meet up with a team that's a little more mature than you are, have had more games with pressure on them than you have. And when you get to that playoff round, you just don't go as far. You don't get to the Eastern Conference Finals. You get knocked out the round before that. But if you don't do a lot of disrupting on the roster, if you realize, hey, we're this close from being able to make it to the Eastern Conference Finals. You get there, then you're playing for the World Championship if you get past that. Are you willing as a front office, as management, as ownership, to see what you have, understand you're just this far away right now, and a year of experience going through the disappointment, hungry players, development taking place, can you come back the next year and do it? Or do you try and make a move that breaks up the team and then you're not the same team anymore? And it happened, I'm speaking from your firsthand experience. When we had that team in Atlanta and lost in game seven, of that series to Boston, we had a lot of young guys on that team. Dominique and Doc Rivers and Randy Whitman and Kevin Willis. Um, 
We have one or two veteran guys who have been around a while, but they were the anchors to the team, like Tree Rollins. But we came so close, one basket away from being in the Eastern Conference Finals. And when we go back and think about it, if we just would have left that team alone, let them come back the next season, had lost by two points to that great Boston team in the seventh game, would we have been able to do more damage than going out, making changes that we did, Got rid of a couple of our guys, key guys. They were glue guys. They were guys that made the team what it was. Mm. Brought in talented individuals, but it disrupted our chemistry. It disrupted what our team was about. And unfortunately, we didn't go nearly as as far as the other team had. Is there any concern, Mike, if you're a coaching staff, that these guys have the ball too much, the other guys are watching them too much, or – Anything in, in, in that regard? Because, you know, clearly you have uh, a guy in Evan Mobley who, who is developing and is, is already a terrific NBA player and going to be even better. I, I just wonder if there's any concern on the coaching staff's part, like, okay, let's make sure everything else clicks. Because think about, you know, like Isaiah and Dumars. They had other guys that, that they really got involved. You know, Bill Lambeer got his touches. Dennis Rodman got touches just by being Dennis Rodman and getting them himself. But, you know, Vinnie Johnson and, and the other guys, John Sally would get, would, would get the ball. And it didn't seem like they were completely the focal point, even though they were a phenomenal backcourt. Is that any concern at all? Or is this good? Let's just keep this going and see how this plays out. Now, obviously there's a concern if the ball stops in one or two players' hands. However, it's up to the coach, the staff, to figure it all out. And that's what Chuck did. You're not running plays to get John Sally a shot. You're not running plays to get Dennis Rodman a shot. I'm sure Chuck sat down with them and said, hey, look, you guys coming in with the second unit, you know, before Rodman eventually became a starter. But you guys are second unit guys. We need energy. We need you to run the floor. We need you to pound the glass, that type of thing. And we got a couple guards that are pretty good in the backcourt. Lambeer is going to be Lambeer. You're not going to get Bill Lambeer cutting and slicing on his own through the lane. That's just not Bill Lambeer. You're going to get him stepping back very similar to what Kevin Love does best. And Lambeer was so effective doing that. As Isaiah or Dumars or Vinny would come off him, he could step back, they could throw it to him, and he would knock down shots with range. So I think you have to figure out what's best for your team. We always looked around at all the other teams in the league, and we say, who do we like on offense? Who do we like on defense? What do, we, what do they do well? Right now, if you ask me, whose offense is tough to guard? Utah. Utah Jazz offense is very tough to guard because of the constant motion, cutting, slicing. And because of the switching in the NBA, you have to go over different guys on the floor at different times when you substitute who's on the floor for you because Utah's going to run that same movement type offense they're right at the top of the league and points scored per game they shoot a high percentage and why they're getting good looks and defenses are having a tough time guarding him so all of that is stuff that coaching staff look at in the offseason try and put together your portfolio of what you want to run and then you run what's good for your team you might like somebody else's offense but you don't have the guys that they do to run it so it's not the right thing for you this episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. 
Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is Basketball Gold. Mike Fratello, former NBA head coach, color analyst for the Clippers and the Cavaliers. I'm Jeff Phelps, and we're going to talk about a touchy situation now, Mike. And I say touchy only because I don't know if, if all coaches are on board with this or if coaches aren't on board with this. And I think you're the perfect guy to talk about it because any, anybody who sees you on TV now knows you're a guy who knows how to dress. Okay. When, when you were coaching in the NBA, you were a fashion fashionista on the sidelines, looking good. You always had the suits I mean, you knew how to dress and you look good doing it. Because of COVID during the pandemic, NBA coaches were allowed to and started to wear like team gear, you know, pullovers and really nice looking, you know, sweats and things. And they're not wearing suits anymore. Before we dig deep, your initial thought on that, because as a guy who wore suits, had to wear suits and it was part of the dress code, I guess. And, and but but you looked damn good, Mike. Well, thank what about you, now? Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. You're welcome. Well, you did. You always look great. Well, I, I I'm sorry to see the dress code uh, go away and Are you? away from what it used to be. Uh, I understand. Uh, I was not in the bubble when the bubble was happening, but I totally understand why they went to. Uh, relaxing the dress code, allowing uh, coaches, uh, staff members that are on the bench to wear team attire with the team logo on it, um, packing for a long trip with suits and ties uh, can be it can be time consuming. Then again, we had other coaches in the old days that they wore one sport jacket and they bought a couple of shirts and a couple of ties. And that's what they were wearing for the game every night. That's what blue blazers are for Mike. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I understand that. And um, unfortunately, as Chuck Daly had once said, wearing the suits and ties separated NBA coaches from other coaches. And Chuck mm-hmm. in one of the meetings where the topic came up, should we vote on what our dress code should be for coaches and take it to the commissioner uh, for his approval, uh, Chuck's voice was heard and heard uh, very well by the coaches association when he said, let's separate ourselves from everyone else. We're not a manager in baseball where we're wearing the baseball uniform. We're not a football coach that is on the sideline uh, in hoodies, sweatshirts, whatever it is to keep warm outside at that time. Um, Although Tom Landry wore his, jacket and tie when he was with with the fedora yes on top Uh, (laughs) but chuck's point was let's be different let's separate let's show them uh, the style of the class that that the nba coach has and guys voted bought into what chuck said and we remained wearing suits and ties Uh, i don't know nowadays if it's going to go back when they vote i i understand there's supposed to be a vote coming up uh, soon in the season and they will take their recommendation to the commissioner and I'm not so sure that uh, you don't have guys that are happy with what it is right now. You know, the, the generational gap uh, between the old timers and, and the new people is so used to that casual attire. Uh, I, I, 
I think back to restaurants that wouldn't let you in a restaurant yeah. because you had a, a certain uh, look about you. Nowadays, restaurants understand that they don't let people in with, let's use jeans, for example. Yeah. You weren't allowed to wear jeans at a certain restaurant. You know, that I've seen with jeans now, you may not have a lot of customers in your place anymore. <laughs> Isn't just, that true? Just the it, style, it's just the time. I when in traveling with with you when you were coaching and and other coaches, I always I actually felt bad for you guys because you know you're carrying three four suits five suits sometimes that had to be a royal pain in the you know what, but now if you look at an NBA bench, the head coach is usually dressed identically to, you know, a guy the 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 big man performance coach you know it there's no separation between anybody could you go casual but maybe have the head coach dress differently or does that not matter at all and these guys are just comfortable in doing their thing you know when you coached internationally you know the international coaches all wore like polo shirts or something like that and and that seemed to be okay but i i, I thought you guys looked good wearing the suits personally i thought it was a great look you bring up a good point that could your assistants, could your staff be in uh, their team attire and the head coach separate himself by wearing a sport jacket or, you know, suit and tie type of thing. And yeah, or we, even a different color warm up or something. I don't know. So he stands out. Is that it? <laughs> maybe. Yeah. Maybe Mike. I don't, I don't know. Well, I know the international thing was different for me the first year that I went over and uh, coached that Ukrainian national team. We wore basically golf shirts yeah. you know, with our logo, with our name on it. All the coaches had the golf shirts on. Uh, we actually went out and got a couple of pairs of pants for the coaches to match the different colors of our shirts. If you had our blue shirt on, our gold shirt on, uh, whichever one we were wearing uh, in the international competition for Ukraine. Uh, but it was very comfortable. It was very uh, it's a whole different feel from being out there with a suit and tie on. Uh, you know, at the end of the game, you're perspiring and, you're, and your, suit and, your suit's going to the dry cleaner. You know that. <laughs> you're not wearing it for the second game. The Yet another level of nonsense that you had to deal with, right? Exactly. <laughs> that organic cleaner I keep looking for. Exactly right, yeah. Well, I wonder if it will change. I wonder, you know, if... I wonder if anybody cares. I've just thought it's something that's been interesting to note the last couple of years. I, it, it would seem that the younger coaches seem to be all in, in favor of it, Mike. And I, I guess I could understand that. I like dressing casually, but if you're, you know, if, if you're the guy, you guys always look great in your coats and ties. I, I got to tell you that. I thought it was impressive. Jeff, how about the college guys? The same thing is happening with them now. Yeah. Where, you know, they were always suits and ties representing their program, team blazer, whatever it might be. And now they've gone the route of the NBA coaches wearing the golf shirts, whatever it might be during the course of their games. I wonder if it if anything goes back. One thing you said that was really interesting, I've always wondered, why, why are baseball managers wearing a uniform? They're, they're not going out there. And football coaches, they could wear almost never, you know, getting dressed up anymore. You used to see it every once in a while. But with the NBA guys, it was a big deal. I'm just, I'm glad for the coaches today, Mike, at least for now, that they're not dragging three, four, five suits with them on road trips. That that never looked like fun, ever. <laughs> Jeff, you know, I can remember when I came into the league, 
and I was 31 years old. UB Brown had hired me as his assistant. In Atlanta? And, yeah, in Atlanta. And I remember showing up for the first road trip. And I had a couple suitcases with me. And UB was like, what the hell are you got packed? <laughs> yeah. And I said to him, UB, bags are going on the plane with all the team bags. When they get to the hotel, they're going to take them off and they're going to deliver them to the rooms like all the team bags. Nothing on me. I just had to pack the stuff and put it in my car and get it here. I said, <laughs> I'm not that worried about it. Uh, I keep, I, I, I have the thought in my head, Mike, of back in the day. Remember Larry Brown, especially when he was in the ABA, sometimes wore some different kind of stuff that stood out a little bit. Like bib, bib overalls. Yes. Like yeah. I remember those. That, that thought will never come out of my head. And, that was the ABA. They had a different color basketball, too, as you remember. Yeah, they, they did all kinds of things. The the one coach in the NBA, you know, Greg Popovich, kind of threw the ties out every once in a while and was would go with an open-collared shirt. Maybe he was the precursor to the changing of things when you get, got down into the bubble with the COVID stuff. Maybe, I don't know, but it, it's an interesting dynamic, and I wonder when they vote on things later this year, if it will change, if they'll go back to it, anything else like that. What do, what do you think of the multiple uniforms the teams have now? And all sales, we know that, you know, they're, they're run by sales. Think of, think of the number of different jerseys the Cavaliers have worn over what the last 10 years between all the throwbacks. I find it interesting, but sometimes if you just turn on a game, Mike, you can't tell which team is yours because they're not wearing colors that were the team colors anymore let's just throw this out for our followers that may be too young to remember this and it may be hard for you to believe this we actually knew way back who the home team was by looking at the team that was wearing the white jersey and we knew who the visiting team was by the team wearing the colored jersey yep and that's all gone out the window now because as you said it's totally driven by merchandise sale. And you think about it, if the NBA players are getting a cut of the merchandise deal and the NBA is getting a cut of the merchandise deal, they want to sell as much merch as they can. Yep. And if that means five, six jerseys during the course of the season, then there'll be five or six jerseys. And you just have to ask somebody around you if you can't figure out who your team is, that's all. <laughs> well, I know an organic cleaner in Los Angeles is not going to be happy that you're heading back to Northeast Ohio, but I know a lot of folks here are. So safe travels, my friend. Enjoy and uh, have a great Thanksgiving. When I get back, I wind up the next day doing a Cavalier game on TV. So I'm excited about that. All right. Clippers, Cavs, he's doing it all. He's Mike Fratello. I'm Jeff Phelps, and this has been Basketball Gold. We'll talk to you next time.